Well, it sort of depends on what type of cancer they had and what their treatment exposures were. But for instance, if they had a brain tumor in a part of the brain that get removed and some of the normal tissue wasn't spared, they might look like an older adult with stroke. You know, they might be a hemiplegic or they might be in a wheelchair or if they had a tumor in their spinal cord, they might be in a wheelchair. Um, some of our sarcoma patients have to had, a, had a limb either amputated or, you know, significantly operated on so that they walk with a limp or they have to use a prosthesis or some sort of assistive device. But even in our other cancer population, say leukemia, which is the most common childhood cancer diagnosis, we see um, adults who have persistent neuropathy, similar to what you might see in a breast cancer survivor. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Reach Podcast. I hope you're all staying safe and well out there. Uh, today's episode is one I'm really, really excited about and a topic that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time, and that is around the area of childhood cancer. Um, and it, to be honest, it's something that I, I, I haven't dipped my own toes into enough or, or don't know much about myself. So it was a great chance for me to chat to uh, Dr. Kristen Ness, who is a researcher at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in uh, Memphis, in te- Memphis, Tennessee, who does a boatload of research in this space and really is an expert across a lot of different types of cancer and um, does some really interesting, unique work in the area of childhood cancer. And she's managed to build out a team. They have their own human performance lab and just do a lot of really unique um, di- types of interventions and both in person and online. So it was a really cool chance for me to to get to know more about this area. And Dr. Ness does a great job of giving an overview of some of the challenges in the space and some of the, the long-term effects of getting um, cancer at an early stage, particularly um, as it relates to development. So really great episode. I enjoyed it a lot. I hope you get something out of it. And other than that, I'll catch you in the next one. All right, Dr. Ness, so I really appreciate your time to to stop by and chat to us today. Um, I think, as I mentioned offline, I think you're doing some really interesting, exciting work. Um, so before we jump into the nitty gritty of the episode, it's probably worth uh, chatting a little bit about your background, where you are and uh, what you're up to. Well, I uh, went to college a long time ago <laughs> and I was a physiotherapist for a number of years and sort of migrated into working at a university where I encountered an oncologist who asked me if there was any evidence to show that what I did as a physio with kids with cancer, because that's what I was doing, was treating kids with cancer, um, worked. And I said, no, there wasn't any evidence to show that it worked, but she had, after all, ordered the physio for me to do, so I was doing it. Um, And she said, well, I think that you should go get a PhD in epidemiology so that you can learn how to do research and study this. Let me introduce you to a guy. So um, she introduced me to Les Robeson, who's my current boss, um, but that we were at the University of Minnesota. So um, I actually quit my job as a physio, well, not really quit, but went to part-time as a physio uh, worked just the weekends and went to graduate school to get a PhD in epidemiology um, and worked on the childhood cancer survivor study as a data analyst during my tenure as a student. Um, and then when I graduated, um, 
Les hired me to be on the faculty at the University of Minnesota, and then he promptly moved to St. Jude. So I promptly called him about a month later and said, um, how come you're not recruiting me to come along? <laughs> and so he came to St. Jude in 2005, and I came in 2006. Um, and really um, started the St. Jude Lifetime Cohort, where we investigated sort of physical disability, because that's my area of interest, you know, function and physical disability in childhood cancer survivors who are adults. So as an epidemiologist, we always start at the top of the river and look and see what happened, you know, up there. Um, and so, you know, I was looking for the effects of treatment on long-term outcomes of the things that happen down at the bottom of the river as people are dumped into the ocean, I always say. So, um, you know, discovering that functional limitations and fitness were really problematic for cancer survivors, for childhood cancer survivors. Um, I've sort of taken what I've learned from adult survivors and tried to translate that back into um, research that not only remediates physical function limitations, but also prevents physical function limitations from happening. The even the 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 lab that you've built in the time you've been there at St Jude, um, is that kind of your doing? Did you go into that space, or or did you build that out yourself? So it used to be a microscope lab when I came <laughs> to St Jude, and I convinced the people in the hematology department that they should give me it some space. <laughs> and started out with one little room, and of course, because this is a hospital, we see people one at a time. We don't, it's not like a big exercise gym, right? It's a, every room is separate. So we see patients one at a time. And, um, they come in and get tested. Um, the majority of our interventions are actually done um, for kids on therapy by physiotherapists at the institution. So I work directly with the physio staff and we design interventions and they execute them and we test. Um, and then for our survivors, um, our interventions are typically done um, in their home community and not in person. We design the intervention so they can do it at home or in a gym, in their own gym. I'm really interested to dig into some of the nitty gritty of that. Um, but I think it's probably important to to backtrack into kind of what you were saying and in the down the river elements and um, what are we talking about when we're talking about kind of these impairments long term from from treatment for a childhood cancer? Well, it sort of depends on what type of cancer they had and what their treatment exposures were. But um, some survivors have significant, what you would consider disability, physical disability. Like, for instance, if they had a brain tumor in a part of the brain that um, had to get removed and some of the normal tissue wasn't spared, they might look like an older adult with stroke. You know, they might be a hemiplegic or they might be in a wheelchair. Or if they had a tumor in their spinal cord, they might be in a wheelchair. Um, some of our sarcoma patients have to had a, had a limb either amputated or, you know, significantly operated on so that they walk with a limp or they have to use a prosthesis or some sort of assistive device. But even in our other cancer populations, say leukemia, which is the most common childhood cancer diagnosis, we see um, adults who have persistent neuropathy, similar to what you might see in a breast cancer survivor. Uh, although the neuropathy and um, leukemia survivors tend to be more motor and less pain um, mm. than than a breast cancer survivor, um, which really 
makes it difficult for them to move efficiently and effectively. We also see a fair amount of obesity um, in survivors who are treated with cranial radiation. Um, but also in other survivor populations, just because the population is obese, so it's difficult to know, you know, how much, well, we know that some is due to their cancer therapy, mm. but not all, you know, the population in the U.S. in particular is obese. Um, and so um, we see cardiopulmonary fitness impairments in the survivor population, both related to having um, exposures which affect the heart and lungs. So like, for instance, anthracycline chemotherapy and chest radiotherapy. Um, or um, in leukemia patients, they get vincristin, which is a neurotoxin, and we think it's potentially neurotoxic to the autonomic nervous system, which changes the way that their heart responds to exercise or movement. Um, some survivors of brain tumors, even though they look okay, might have some subtle balance problems, which makes it difficult for them as children to do things like ride a bike and mm. um, go on a scooter and play on the playground. I feel like it's uh, it's such a more challenging and complex area because you're you're dealing with the impairments from from treatments and and the tumor itself, but also in this really important stage where they're probably going through normal motor development, and that development might also be impaired. Correct. Yeah. So if you have chemotherapy for three years, when you're three to six years old, you're not going to learn to jump and skip and hop <laughs> and play ball like other three to six year olds. Um, so we do see that they might um, not participate in those things as a young child, which I don't know if we know whether or not that it ends up being that it sort of sets up a cycle of a sedentary lifestyle. So they didn't do those things because it didn't feel good. Because people don't do things that don't feel good. Um, <laughs> it didn't feel good, and so they just never did it. It's not that they can't recover partly and you know return to um, their norm or the activities which would be normal for their age. And um, I think that they, um, you know, some of them do well. I mean, I'm, I'm not not all cancer survivors do terrible. Mm. Some of them do quite well. So yeah. I think it, it, it. There's a lot of other things that go into it. You know, whether or not. So, for instance, their parents, um, you know, rightly so, are very concerned and sort of indulgent mm. um, during cancer therapy. So, you know, if you want to eat tater tots and ride in the wagon instead of, you know, having carrots and <laughs> walking <laughs> to your physio appointment, you probably get your way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, yeah. So, so there, you know, there's all there's all sorts of challenges, and I think the challenges are. Developmental cancer and its therapy, environmental, social support. Mm. You know, if you come from a a sporty family, I call it a sporty family, then you're probably going to be encouraged to be sporty, just like the rest of the population. <laughs> I wonder is um is is it more challenging then because you're kind of involving the parents in the process and you're trying to get buy in from them as well in terms of the the physical therapy approach, um, because. I heard imagine it's pretty challenging to have a four-year-old do your tree sets or whatever to, to try and um, target some of these impairments. Right. But, you know, um, therapy for children, physical, physical therapy for children is play-based mm. for kids of that age. You know, we, we, to encourage movement for a child, we have to encourage movement through play or through games, um, 
during the therapy session, it's not like sending a 18 year old to the gym to lift weights. Mm. It's, it's, or to, you know, tell him to go cause to go for a run because kids don't exercise like that normally. I mean, mm. kids move sporadically and they engage their environment because they're interested in it. And that's how physical therapy is for children that age. So in our, one of our protocols that we have for kids with brain tumors, where we do interval training to try and get their heart rate up, um, all of the interval training in kids that are young is really, you know, playing a game like, you know, chasing the therapist on a bicycle or, <laughs> you know, um, you know, running after, a, you know, a hockey puck or, you know, playing field hockey or um, playing football, you know, so it, it's more, it's more a game. So, you know, families are involved too, because we have to incorporate their choices. You know, what, what can their family do? It's really fascinating to, to kind of see that play-based approach, uh, even in, I suppose in terms of your assessments that would dictate what your, your prescription or approach would be to target different impairments and how you would probably modify the session of play to, to maybe target different impairments. Yeah. Right. So um, we did a intervention with kids who had hemiplegia, who had survived a brain tumor. And um, the occupational therapist at St. Jude actually provided all the intervention and we um, restrained their affected, their unaffected arm. So we actually put their good arm in a cast so they couldn't move it. Wow. And then had them do all of their play activities with the affected arm and and they wore the cast for three weeks so i mean we it was we could take it off for washing and stuff like that and the parents were very engaged to that so each one of these children spent eight hours a day with the occupational therapist to to learn how to remove their arm Mm. so you know that that's a very specific thing but it's still i i just love how creative you have to be to kind of have these different approaches um, based on the, the person coming into your clinic. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's the job of the therapist <laughs> to be creative. Yeah. That's their art. Yeah. You know, they know a lot of science, but their art is really how to engage the, the child. And, and, and that's why I think that, you know, therapists who work with kids and therapists who work with older adults, actually both have to be, you know, they have to be, super creative in their approach to be able to get results. Yeah. And I think it's also kind of, uh, as you mentioned there a little bit, loosening the reins on what we think of as the traditional exercise prescription. Um, Even with older adults, it's not going to be this super regimented um, program. We can have elements of it, but finding creative ways to still get the, whatever the physiological or psychosocial outcome from a different angle. Um, and having it kind of more directed towards enjoyment and play, I think is a really unique way of doing it. I, I think that, you know, we should recognize there's a, there's a couple other groups in the world that are doing some really interesting work with this. Mm. So there's the group in Copenhagen led by Kjell Schmigdalo, where they um, actually have this ambassador program where kids who are in the hospital receiving chemotherapy or treatment for their cancer are paired with a schoolmate 
because it's Denmark and it's a small country, so they can do this. <laughs> we could never do it in the U.S. It would be really tough in places like Australia or China, right? But um, paired with a schoolmate, and the schoolmate comes in and exercises with them and does their schoolwork at the hospital with the child. That's super creative. I think that's really interesting. And then there's a there's a group in um, at Princess Maxima Hospital in Utrecht, um, led by a newly minted PhD um, who has a PhD in like. Um, you know, sort of space engineering. And they, um, they have this uh, concept called play space or playscapes. And they have objects like in their waiting room that are like for kids to play with that encourage movement. So um, they have like a little ball that runs away from them if they approach it. And I mean, I, I think there's a lot of places in the world now that are really creative with kids with cancer because, yeah. you know, we sort of have to be. Um, I, I wonder when you're talking about some of the kind of impairments, you we talk about um, uh, amputations or that kind of features that they may come across as if you know someone who would have a stroke, which is more intuitive, you know, if there's some sort of kind of glaring physical impairment as opposed to body comp changes or, or cardiotoxicity or whatever it is. Do you think those more subtle changes are? there's less awareness around them and there's kind of less conversation around kind of the impact of those longer term, more subtle changes. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think that people recognize that it, that it's difficult for people who have what you would consider. I don't know if I'd say they're all that subtle, but I would say hidden, mm. unapparent, hidden, hidden changes or hidden impairments, you know, not visible to the everyday eye. Um, recognizing that it might be difficult for this particular child or young adult or adult survivor to move and participate. And so they go to clinic to see their general practitioner who says, well, just move more and eat less. <laughs> well, it's not, you know, because their body, you know, they might be a little obese. So everybody always tells them move more, eat less. Well, that's true, but it might be really difficult to move more because, Moving more doesn't get the response that moving more gets in, in you or I, where we have an intact cardiopulmonary system that knows how to respond. Um, these, these kids don't have that. And so I think that's less well recognized. And it's also not, unless the impairment is clinically evident, right? It's, it's really hard to screen for these things mm -hmm. because it's just not on people's radar. Again, childhood cancer Oh, survivorship is a miracle of modern medicine, right? It's one of the miracles of modern medicine, but the, it's still a rare disease. Mm. So, you know, in the U.S., a general prac internist will probably have, have, you know, three childhood cancer survivors in their practice ever in their career. <laughs> if they're in the general clinic, right? Unless they, unless they're in a place that's a hotbed of cancer care like Memphis, but, um, you know, they won't, and, and so they won't even think about that. Um, so, um, kind of one of the bigger things that we talk about from the adult cancer perspective is, is this idea of cognitive impairment. How does that look in, in the, in the folks that you work with? And, and is it more difficult to kind of track the differences between someone with cancer versus someone, you know, without in terms of the cognitive impairment, um, that exists? No, I think that cognitive impairment cognitive impairments in childhood cancer survivors are well-documented. Um, there's a group here at St. Jude led by Kevin Krull, who, you know, has shown that 
cognitive impairment is associated with certain chemotherapy exposures in leukemia survivors, even if they don't get cranial radiation. Of course, brain tumor survivors are regularly screened, and, and we know that they can have cognitive impairment. But other groups of survivors also have cognitive impairment, um, often related to the fact that they have chronic disease. So if you don't get enough blood from your or if your blood that goes through your lungs doesn't get enough oxygen put in it to go to your brain to tell your brain what to do, then, you know, your brain doesn't know what to do. Um, I also hypothesize, and I don't have any evidence to prove this, but I hypothesize that if you can't move while you're developing, then you don't have normal cognitive development. Mm. Because movement is the principal way that children learn mm. to start with. You know, so if you're stuck, if you're stuck, not moving, then it makes it difficult to learn. I think that that's the area that fascinates me with it. It happens at such an important time of their life with with so much other things going on in terms of development that all these systems that I'd imagine the, the effects aren't necessarily distinct from adults, but because of the role it plays at the time it plays, it, it, they can be fairly profound. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that, yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for validating. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of, one of the questions before we move on, you were talking about, um, I think it was leukemia, where you were saying that the neuropathy is more from uh, more motor-related than pain-related compared to um, uh, breast cancer. Yeah, it's a different, it's a different agent. Mm. So the, you know, the agents that adult breast cancer patients receive that's neurotoxic, you know, a lot of times they have um, significant amounts of pain from their treatment. Whereas um, during therapy, kids who get vincristin or platinum agents will have pain and decreased sensation. But I don't know if it's because they sort of get used to not having good sensation over time that they don't complain about that. But we see that the problems in survivors long term seem to be motor, like they, they have difficulty with ankle mobility and difficulty with fine motor dexterity. And, and maybe, you know, they were three when they had cancer therapy and now they're 43. Well, first of all, they don't really remember that they had cancer therapy. And second of all, they've been living with this impairment since they were three. And so they've adapted in a very different way than an adult who got cancer when they were 40 would adapt. Um, but they, they don't, I mean, they have uh, cancer, some adult survivors of childhood cancer have pain, but it's probably not because they've had pain their whole life. It's because they have other reasons for having pain. You know, they, they are missing a limb. So their musculoskeletal development was, I don't know, I want to say kitty wampus, you know, like sort of, <laughs> they, they can be crooked. They can get scoliosis. Um, or because you know, they don't have good, strong muscle tone, and so they get back pain, or they have foot drops, so they're standing on flat feet all day long. Or, I mean, there are some survivors who maybe have phantom pain from their amputation. I don't know if we've found tons of that, but, you know, that's possible. Mm. Um, so I think that that's, that pain in adults who were treated for cancer as children is an under-investigated area. Yeah. There's some who complain, but it's really under-investigated. Um, one of our um, very junior faculty at St. Jude in psychology, Nicole Alberts, is doing a big um, 
cross-sectional study in the childhood cancer survivor study to look at pain. Um, and I think that that will be a very um, relevant and revealing project. She's doing sort of a remote pain assessment with this. And there's about 30,000 survivors in that cohort. So. Wow. <laughs> she won't be junior faculty for long. She has 30,000 people. In the <laughs> <study>. <laughs> um, how difficult is it to, or, or we're, we're trying to recover motor function, uh, particularly once you get into that kind of adult survivorship stage, how difficult is it to recover that um, and kind of restore as, as normal as possible function? So this is how I think about therapy. You have, you have three things you can do. You can restore function. So for instance, if somebody is pretty sedentary and the reason why they don't have good function is because they're sedentary and you can increase their physical activity and you can get more muscle mass and you can get their heart to respond then that's restoring function and you can work on that. And that's one way that you can, you know, intervene. Another way is, is that you can teach them to compensate for losses in function. So in, in people with diabetes who have like abnormal sensation in their feet and say leukemia survivors who have abnormal sensation in their feet, um, we teach them not to walk around at night without putting a nightlight in their house so that they don't trip and fall down um, so you can teach people to compensate for a loss or say, for instance, you have somebody who has impaired cardiac function because of anthracycline and chemotherapy based treatment. Um, you know, muscles have some restorative potential because they have satellite cells. They're not like nerves. So they, we can get some gains, but we might not be able to completely remodel the heart with exercise or drugs. Um, but we might be able to get some benefit from doing an exercise program and get them stronger and have better ejection fraction. But we also can compensate for this loss by having them get stronger in other areas of their body, like their skeletal system. So we can make their muscles strong so that they're supporting their vascular system and they can get better return of blood to the heart and lungs and then function better. So we're not making it perfect, but we're finding a way to compensate for lost function. And then for those where we can't have functions and amputation, we can give them a, a adaptive device like a prosthetic or for people who have become paralyzed because they had a tumor in their spine, we can you know teach them how to function in a wheelchair, just like any other person with a disability. So I think that there's lots of ways we can do things. And of course, I always think that exercise is the answer. So <laughs> there, are, there are also some great medications out there for some of these things. Um, you, in speaking to you, um, I kind of look through your CV, you have a great deal of clinical experience. That really comes out in your perspective about this. I think your, your creativity and, and kind of thinking about how you can navigate these different issues I think it is a testament to your clinical experience. And I think that probably informs a bunch of how you design your research as well. Oh, well, yes. And, the, and then the therapists that I work with every day, you know, at St. Jude also inform me <laughs> about what will and won't work because they know. <laughs> so um, talk us through what, you, what you're doing now, what you're trying to focus on at, at St. Jude and what's important to you. So for the um, kids on therapy, I have a protocol open now that does um, interval training. These are kids with brain tumors. We do that during radiation therapy 
the rehab department delivers the intervention for six weeks. So they get radiation one day and then they get, they get therapy, um, working on really aerobic well-being. Um, and, and then their parents get taught how to do it and they continue to do it. Our primary outcome in that study is, um, cognition, um, at the end of the intervention to see if we can prevent them from having cognitive loss. Our study was sort of based on this animal model that somebody else did. And then we're also looking at cardiopulmonary function because brain tumor survivors do have impaired cardiopulmonary function. Um, So that's one of my intervention studies with kids on therapy. We have another study for kids with leukemia where we're trying to improve bone health during therapy. um, And we're using a device, um, called low magnitude stimulation. It's a vibrating plate, but it's not the one that throws you all around. It's just (laughs) really subtle, like a toothbrush on your feet. Um, We're using that during leukemia therapy right at the beginning, the first year, to try and prevent them from losing so much bone. Uh, We're just getting started on that study. Um, uh, Let's see. I have an exercise intervention that's opened um, in the children's oncology group worldwide. So there's 221 institutions that are eligible, 106, I just had a study update this morning, 106 institutions have the study open, and we're doing a, um, a physical activity intervention that's remote, and uh, the, the randomization is they either get randomized to be exercising sort of with buddies, they don't really exercise with the buddies, but they can see the buddies on the social media site, so they can see the avatars of the other kids and they can compete against each other with pre-written messages because, you know, they're kids. And <laughs> they're middle school-age kids. And we don't need them to tell each other things they shouldn't be telling each other. So <laughs> the messages are pre-written. Um, and, they, and then the other group the, uh, still gets the same exercise intervention, but they don't see any buddies. They just see themselves. So that's more like the Fitbit by yourself versus – it's not a Fitbit, but it's because it's more kid-friendly than that. Um, and then the kids, they earn points and rewards and they, um, can get gift cards and trinkets and stuff like that. Um, so that study has been going for a couple of years. Um, we'll enroll about 325 kids on that study. By the time we're done, we're about just over a third of the way there on that study. So it's a couple of years to go. Um, in adult survivors, we just published a study looking at the effects of strength training and um, protein supplementation on body composition. Um, it just got published. Well, it's not, it's not published yet. It's just the, no, I think it's published online now, but the, um, in medicine and science and sports and exercise. Um, and we didn't see any effects of the supplementation, but we, we saw lots of effects of the strength training. So that seems to work in survivors with abnormal body composition. Can I ask on the, um, uh, on the body composition, um, what does that look like? Is it because you know, in a lot of what we see is in adult cancer survivors, we see um, the changes in all tissue, <laughs> muscle mass drops, fat mass increases, see bone bone loss. What are you trying to target in your space? So I'm trying to get more muscle, so more lean mass. Because if you have more lean, well, if you have more lean mass, you have you, you're going to have better metabolism. You're going to be less insulin resistant because muscles are the primary insulin receptor in the body. Also, if you have stronger muscles, you're going to have stronger bones. Um, If you have more muscle, you're going to have higher metabolism. So you'll be able to process your calories better and be less likely to be obese. We see the same, we see what in adults they call sarcopenic obesity, 
I would say it's very similar to that. Um, and interestingly, in children with cancer, that actually probably precedes weakness, which is different than in older adults. So in older adults, they get weak first and then they get sarcopenia. In children with cancer, they lose their muscle and then they get weak. So it's kind of a sort of a different phenomenon. Yeah. So uh, you're, you're on a tangent there talking about all your other studies. What else have you got going on? So in our other survivor study that we think that we think that we got a favorable score at an NIH grant review recently, so we think this is going to get going, is a home-based, so via Zoom sort of platform type thing, we're going to do a home-based cardiac rehab program for survivors who have difficulty with cardiopulmonary fitness. Mm. So they'll be coming to the trainer via Zoom and we'll be monitoring them exercising in their home space or wherever they choose to exercise. But um, in so uh, that that's sort of based on a study that was done by Jessica Scott at Sloan Kettering mm. in adults with cancer, um, you know, stand, sending the device to their home. Um, so we'll have them exercising at home with my lab staff. That'll be fun. We're excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've pretty much got everything. <laughs> you've got a bunch of stuff that spans across um, a lot of different areas. Um, with the when you were talking about radiation, are, are you, is it? I don't want to say just. Are you looking at um, cognitive impairment pre and post radiation? Are you doing sort of follow ups um, after that, or how does that look? Well, so in the brain tumor study, we are looking at their cognitive status at baseline after they receive their initial radiation therapy, and then um, and then we'll evaluate it like a year later and two years later and five years later. So we're looking at it at multiple time points to see, you know, does it help? Does what we did persist? Because after they get done with radiation with, for this particular type of brain tumor, it's medulloblastoma. They go home for six weeks, and then they come back and get a big giant blast of chemotherapy, which is a kind of unpleasant. They don't feel very good during that chemo. And they really don't exercise during chemo for that disease. They get too nauseated. So um, anyway, we, um, so we'll be evaluating, and I'm working with um, Heather Conklin in psychology on that project. She's an expert in that area, brain tumor and cognition. So um, yeah, I mean, and then in our long-term survivors, um, we are, um, you know, we, Dr. Krull and I are thinking about doing a, we haven't written this yet, but we're thinking about doing a study where we compare the effects of exercise to cognitive behavioral therapy because people who were treated for leukemia say and got chemo, they have problems with attention and, and memory, but they don't, or more attention, a little bit of memory, executive function, but they don't like have a low IQ, right? That's not their problem. And so um, we're looking at doing uh, a comparison of exercise versus cognitive behavioral therapy, which is, you know, more like computer-based learning type teaching them to be aware and then a combination of the two and seeing, you know, what type of results we get. But we haven't, we haven't written that study yet. We, we've been busy. Yeah. It's, it sounds like a great napkin idea that once it yeah. comes to fruition. <laughs> um, so you've been working in this space for a while. How have you seen changes either 
at St. Jude or kind of more broadly with the perception of the role of physical therapy or exercise uh, both during and after chemo, or chemo treatment for, for childhood cancer? So I think that the interest worldwide has really blossomed, but I think we have a long way to go. Um, in pediatrics, I think that the oncologists, because they were forced to cooperate with each other years ago to, to come up with a cure, and because, they're, because childhood cancer is rare, have made a lot of progress. Also, children tolerate chemo better than adults, um, but um, have made a lot of progress. But I think the opposite is true in terms of the, what I call the exercise space. That, you know, in adult populations, they've really done a lot more work demonstrating the effectiveness of exercise, physical activity, even now some nutrition interventions on outcomes in survivors. Um, and so I think that in the pediatric and in the pediatric survivor world, we're just starting to catch up. Um, I think that we need to think, I mean, we need to think creatively, as you've said, um, about strategies that work with families for children with cancer. And that's difficult to do because it's like a lot of moving parts, you know, saucers spinning on the stick and balls flying in the air. And, you know, because these are parents who have jobs, who have siblings, who have a child with cancer. And, and we really have to think about the best ways and space to approach that. And, and also the timing. Um, difficult to ask a parent to make their sick child exercise. So, I mean, I just think that that's, that's, that's a challenge. I can't imagine the, the, uh, the challenges of, I mean, I, I'm not sure how often a week your, your interventions run for an individual, but the challenge of getting back to a hospital with two parents who are, you know, maybe working full time and trying to fit time and space for an exercise intervention in there has got to be a lot as well. Yeah. So that's why we have to, that's why we have to, I think that, one of the most important things in our in our work going forward is we have if when we when we do interventions that involve younger children, we really have to engage the parent family, you know, um, what I call you know their social space into helping us design the best ways to make it as normal as possible too. Because you know it's simply not normal for you to sit down and do calisthenics <laughs> when you're six. You want to go out and play. Well, you really now yeah. want to go out and play, right? Now that we're trapped inside for a while, so. So, um, do do you find there's a lot of kind of, uh, I suppose, fear and misconception on the parents' end of what the the child can do, what they think is safe, and do you spend a lot of time in that space trying to work through that? I, I don't. I don't know. As though I think it's that. I think it's more. Can we fit this in with everything else we have to do? like take all of our oral medications every day, try and not, especially for school age kids, not get so far behind in school. You know, um, and, and, and initial cancer diagnosis is very scary. So we also have to, you know, take into account the fact that this is just like a major life event, um, you know, not only for the child, but for their family and their friends and all of their community. And, um, you know, we have to we have to take that into account. We're already asking them to do a lot, and so we have to think about what this asking them to do. How does this fit in, and when does it fit in? I mean, I think that that's one of the things that we can learn from families and, and caregivers. I think uh, 
it, it might end up being this kind of hybrid approach where you have um, your kind of physical intervention where they come to you and, and kind of learn how and what to do, but then maybe you transition more towards that distant and, and kind of Zoom approach to try and maintain activity and give them more flexibility. Right, and give them choices, you know. So if they're, if they're you know, if, if their four other children are competitive swimmers, then you have to figure out a way to make it so that this child eventually can be a competitive swimmer also because, you know, if I had four children who are competitive swimmers, the fifth one's not doing something different. <laughs> I'm way too practical for that. But yeah. No, I mean, you know, I think that it's important for the them to engage just like other children engage. Um, you know, you need, need to make it so that you can teach the child and the family to adapt the activity if they need to so that the child can participate. And I don't think we've ever thought about adaptive sport, right, for children with cancer. We don't think about it that way. You know, for kids with actual, you know, congenital or trauma-induced physical disability, there's adaptive sport, you know. There's wheelchair basketball, you know, and, and, but we don't really think about adapting the regular sport so that the child who's maybe response isn't that great to start with can figure out how to do it. I think that that's, I think that that's a really good idea. I think, you know, you have to, you have to figure out how that might work. So when, when we're working with, with kind of adults, when we start to talk about some of the side effects, they're like, yes, like that's exactly what I'm experiencing and no one's told me about it and I'm kind of in this space. Do you find that particularly people who have who have maybe had cancer 10, 15, 20 years ago as kids, do you find that in your in your space where they're like, I didn't know why I had motor impairment or whatever the, the impairment is? Well, I, I think that that's not so true at our institution where the survivorship program is really strong. Mm. So, because, you know, we see our survivors from diagnosis till death. So they come back in every three to five years when they're adults and see us in the lab and we talk to them about it. And, and so, and they, and they, and they've been followed in our after completion of therapy clinic by Melissa Hudson and her colleagues for years. And so I think that our, our survivors are more educated than most. And so they sort of know, but they're perfectly willing to tell us that something isn't working out. And we have an entire team of, you know, that's the beauty of being at St. Jude. I mean, we have, uh, we have the, the wonder and the, the luck of being a charity and having resources to provide really good follow-up management um, for our survivors. A lot of my colleagues call, tell me that I work at Disneyland. <laughs> well, you work at Disneyland, so <laughs> don't talk to me about that. Are, uh, are most of the folks you see coming directly from Memphis, or, or what's the radius of, of kind of location you're working with? The challenges there, I suppose. Our catchment area is the Mid-South, um, but we see survivors from all over the um, United States, and we see kids from all over the United States, and um, we have a global outreach program. Um, that's those kids though in the global outreach program are seen in their home countries. Um, and the global team here at St. Jude teaches them how to be cared for in their home countries. So 
that's that's more of a support system for places that are less developed countries yeah. or who have less medical resources, you know, like, um, but no, we see survivors from all over. Although I would say that a, a huge, not just from Memphis, Memphis isn't actually all that big. It's only like a million, it's only about a million people in mm. the greater Memphis area, which includes parts of Mississippi and Arkansas and some suburbs. So, um, but we see people from all over the South, Southeast, um, a lot of people, we have affiliates in the U S so we have a lot of patients who start their initial treatment at St. Jude and then they fit, finish up their care closer to home, like in Illinois or California or other parts of Tennessee, um, um, Louisiana. So where do you think the kind of most important areas uh, are in terms of research moving forward in this space? I think we have to figure out when the optimal timing, I think that, um, and the most efficacious but effective so efficacious mean meaning that it works um but effective means it can be disseminated Mm. um way to do this is i I think we have a lot of work to do between timing and effectiveness in families and you know i i've been trying to focus my arena of research on both providing for the adults who are in our survivorship program a way they can effectively take care of themselves because you can't change what chemo you had, but you can change your lifestyle. If it's not great, you can optimize your lifestyle. Um, And so I'm trying to do that, but I also think that we need to do more prevention. And so I think we just need to figure out, can we, at least for those things that lifestyle might have an effect on, you know, how can we do prevention? How can we teach families and kids to move forward as they graduate from cancer therapy? They move on. Here we have a no more chemo party. And how do we teach them to move on? Um, you know, what kind of resources do they need to prevent the late effects that we know are caused by some of the agents we deliver? Hmm. You definitely got your work cut out for you, that's for sure. I know. <laughs> but that's why I have to have a multidisciplinary team that includes, you know, behavioral specialists and people who have expertise in diet and mm. people who have expertise in family dynamics. And So listen, it, it was a fascinating chat. I, I think what you're doing is really, really interesting and important and look forward to seeing the work that can, continues to come out of your lab. Uh, where can people find out more about you where do they can they keep up with your work um well they can they can come to the saint jude website and it's www.stjude.org and then forward slash kness and that'll take you to the lab page and we update that um and then i do have a twitter account but you know i'm not so skilled at that but i'm working on it so i'll try and be better <laughs> about tweeting um you have one of the most well-maintained websites I've seen oh. for for kind of academics. We don't do a great job at maintaining the lab website, but it looks it looks great. Um, you can find out all about the current studies, past work, and um, your interests. So I'd encourage people to, to jump on there and check out uh, what Dr. Ness is up to. And I appreciate your time so much. Thank you. It was great. <laughs>